Hello out there. Welcome to another Silicon Valley review. I'm Kevin. With me is... I'm Aaron. Aaron. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? How was your trip last week? It was awesome. Yeah, I went to uh, Tokyo, Kyoto, and then on to Seoul, South Korea. Did you see anything related to the startup scene now in any of those cities? Uh, no, just lots of cool technology. Okay. I mean, nothing really related to startups, but, uh, man, I mean, like, I know it sounds pretty low tech, but you don't open any doors in Japan yourself. Like they are all automatic. They're all sliding. Even on the train, you're, you know, on the bullet train between Tokyo and Kyoto, the doors between the cars are sliding automatic doors. It sounds good for a guy of made of convenience like you. Yes. Or yeah. someone who... If possible, maybe less effort than more effort. Yeah, <laughs> especially when it comes to like physical exertion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, having to go through the hassle of opening doors. It would be interesting to better understand what the startup scene is out there. You know, I feel like here in Texas, we're always trying to compare it to you know between Dallas and Austin or the West Coast, East Coast. Boulder has its own. Southern California is now developing a startup scene. I know that there are definitely startups all around the world. We know that. China has a ton of, not a ton, but a handful of, um, maybe maybe several dozen unicorns that we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see a lot of news coming out of Japan, though, do you? No, no, and I don't know if it's just the, you know, the brands or the you know companies that we're familiar with from Japan are such established brands that sort of drowns out everything else. But, I mean, I know, like, you know, when, when we were at CES back in January, most of the companies, I'd say a majority of the, the smaller booths that we saw, were just a ton of Chinese companies. There's just, you know, there were tons and tons of Chinese companies with all different types of tech. Yeah, so maybe the they're, they're push or encouraged much more in China than in Japan. Okay, well, we should probably intro. This is the Silicon Valley Review. We're talking about season three, episode four. Season four, season four. episode four. Yes. So I did season four, episode three last week by myself. Aaron was out of town. I know we're a little late with this one. We'll get episode five out quickly so let's, let's jump, jump right, right into it the first thing that i thought was interesting aaron is this one this is more of a, just a a commentary on the startup scene why is richard always wearing a hoodie and the hoodie pulled over because that's what these startup guys do i mean you look at zuckerberg zuckerberg you know granted you know i think he sort of his origins are as a programmer but uh zuckerberg always has his you know traditional gray hoodie on and that's sort of what he was known for. So I agree with that. that. And I wonder if this is an homage to Mark Zuckerberg. I definitely feel that this is the stereotype for the programmers or maybe the programmers mm-hmm. to, to wear the well, hoodie. No, no, not broker. Programmers wouldn't be no. dead in a hoodie. No, that's that's too programmerish yeah, that's for them. That's true. I would say that the founders that come into our office, the non-tech ones, probably not inclined to wear a hoodie. Mm-hmm. The tech ones, the tech start founders, probably inclined to wear a hoodie. I think... Founders as a whole could probably spend a little bit more time in the gym, right? Or... I think everybody can use a little more time <laughs> okay. in the gym. That's one thing we have noticed is that the founders tend to get so into the company that sometimes they lose uh, maybe track of their health. Sort of the way I am with with our law firm. That's right. You I really mean, except for appreciate. Well, I mean, I, I do. I do go see a personal trainer on Wednesdays. I don't know if you knew that, but for those of you who are not in the office on Wednesday mornings, Aaron makes it loud and clear, widely known. That he saw a personal trainer that day. I mean, I can't help it if he, you know, he just really pushes me and 
you know, really gets, you know, peak performance. But I think that makes you a better employee. I really do. And we can have that conversation another time. Not sure if anyone cares about it. So, all right. The the episode opens up. Uh, Richard goes and he had met with Gavin Belson. Richard's still wearing a hoodie. They go to Gavin's house and they're working through the terms of their deal, right? Or they're, excuse me, they're talking about who they're going to hire. And, uh, Gavin's obviously working through some issues at home. He had torn up and destroyed a lot of his house. He's got the movers coming in and, and moving stuff around. So one of the first things that, uh, you know, related to tech that I want to start up law I want to talk about was Richard mentions they've got this new company with Gavin and the, Richard's under a licensing agreement. So they have a licensing agreement in place to use the, was it a patent? I believe yes. Gavin and Peter had filed some patent many, many years ago and Gavin still owned it. So they're going to license it. The new company's going to license it. So let's talk about the license agreement. Let's talk about ownership of that patent. Right. So the licensing agreement, I think, is interesting. You know, if, if we represent the company, instead of a license agreement, I prefer to get a contribution agreement. Right. I mean, if, if you get a contribution agreement, then the company owns it. Right. It's, so, it's essentially transferring ownership. Correct. Where, you know, a licensing agreement, you know, it, it gets the job done, but, you know, doesn't give the company the ultimate control or ownership of the- so that's one important thing to understand is a license agreement excessive exclusive license agreement and you can make it perpetual so that no one else can use it and you can use it forever it gives you, you the right to it irrevocable, it, irrevocable, you, know, you can't, irrevocable, you can't take it away but you still don't necessarily own it so if someone comes to buy you they're either going to buy that licensing agreement as well they're going to buy that license or you have to go back to the source or the licensor and ask them if we can now buy it so one thing to keep in mind you would prefer to have a contribution agreement. That's not always the case. In fact, we're working with a client right now that has a really cool piece of technology, of hardware technology. He's going to license that hardware technology to a software company so they can build a software on top of the hardware. But he just wants to license it because this software application might not be the only application of the hardware, right? There could be other ways of using it. But if you're the founder, if you're the company, you'd much prefer a contribution agreement. So we've got that licensing agreement in place. Now, Gavin purports, or Gavin Peer purports to own that patent themselves. So what is that going to tell us about the timing of when Gavin created that technology, developed that technology, and went to work for who? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if if Gavin owns it personally, then it means that, I would assume that it means that it was, you know, they got that patent prior to Hooli. Um, what, what doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is even if it was prior to Hooli, if it was something, you know, even tangentially related to Hooli, when the company founded or when Hooli went out and started getting their first rounds of funding, you know, the investors would have required that all of the intellectual property that's remotely tied to Hooli be assigned to Hooli. Yeah, I agree with that. That's the part that as a startup attorney had me scratching my head because it'd be really odd that Gavin didn't hadn't already contributed that patent into Hooli. There's some ways that this could have gone down, right? Maybe when he was terminated, he repurchased it or he grabbed the right back to it. Perhaps it was always a carve out, like you said. At some point in time in the financing rounds, the investors asked the founders, if they haven't already, to assign all their IP into the company. So perhaps this was a carve out. And Gavin specifically kept this from the company because it wasn't exactly related to it, though it does seem like technology that really could have built upon. Yeah, yeah although, I mean, if, if, if Gavin and Peter had already sort of tried it and it didn't work and, you know, I could see, you know, making a case where, you know, if I'm Gavin, I'm going to say, oh, no, you know, this isn't it's not related to what we're working on at Hooli. And even if it were related to what we're working on at Hooli, it doesn't work. That's correct. So there are plausible ways that it, that it could have stayed in Gavin's hands. Maybe Peter owned a, you know, a, a 
right to it. He willed it back to Gavin, you know, after he passed, something like that. But typically, when we find, when our companies uh, come to us and we first get them going, one of the things we do as part of the incorporation is we have all the founders sign an IP assignment agreement. You want to get that IP out of the founders' heads, out of the founders' uh, you know, personal, away from the founders' personal rights and into the company. One way that this comes up, and I can't remember if we've talked about this on, the, on this podcast or not, this comes up a lot with domain names. Oh, yeah. Right? It's pretty typical. If Aaron and I wanted to start a company, we're going to start, uh, you know, badassbusinessdudes.com. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good idea, right? Yeah. Who, wait, who owns yeah. that now? So if we started badassbusinessdudes.com and Aaron went and registered the domain name, and then a week or two later, we decided, all right, let's incorporate a corporation here. Let's get some founder's shares. Let's get founder's agreement. Aaron still owns that domain name. He hasn't contributed into the company because before it was just an idea going back and forth. Now, once we have the company in place, there's a much stronger argument that Aaron is doing work for the company, especially if a services agreement in place, which would assign all of the IP he creates thereafter into the company. So typically what we do is we, Aaron and I would both sign an IP assignment agreement, which says, all right, we're going to assign everything, including domain names, into the company. Absent that, if Aaron and I get into a business dispute, Aaron can take his ball and go home. He's got, he owns the domain name. I can't call GoDaddy and say, hey, we have badass business dudes corporation. You know, excuse me, Inc. Here's the paperwork in Delaware. GoDaddy say, I don't care. Aaron Turway himself registered badassbusinessdudes.com. So you want to assign those things into the company. And, and do it sooner rather than later because, you know, I, I think if, as we've seen recently, you know, it's sort of a pain to have to go, you know, you're trying to close around with financing. And that's the one thing that's holding everything up is the fact that, you know, we have a bunch of employees or contractors that haven't signed information, uh, confidential information and uh, invention assignment agreements. And then, you know, the, the investor doesn't want to close because they want to make sure all that technology is locked up in the company. I want to reaffirm this point. This happens all the time. Get those things signed. Get your employees to sign their agreements. The founders sign those agreements. Make sure it's ironclad that the that the corporation owns all of the business. Well, and also sooner rather than later because you want them to sign it when everybody's happy and, you know, they're excited to get to work rather than, you know, the relationship is soured. And now all of a sudden you're trying to scramble before they, you know, blow up and quit. Um, trying to get them to sign this document. I agree. And I want to clarify, I said before, the, make sure the corporation owns all the business, I mean, all the business assets, all the intellectual property related to the business. Okay, so let's dive back into the show, Aaron. So Jin Yang's working on his food recognition technology, and he basically creates this, this technology that can identify a hot dog, and it gets everyone all excited. You've got Monica in there representing the investor. You've got the other employees, the key stakeholders of the business. And they go to take a picture of, I think it was pizza or spaghetti pizza. next, yeah. pizza, and all it says is not a hot dog, which is hilarious. And then Jin Yang, you know, just the deadpan face, uh, I think he's doing a fantastic role. So they get this hot dog, not hot dog. Obviously, the investor, Monica, is very disappointed. The other stakeholders, uh, Ehrlich, and then at that point in time, um, I don't think anyone else was working for them, right? Because the other guys... So it's just Ehrlich is obviously very disappointed because Jin Yang had been out coding for a week and this is the best they could do. So that moves the ball forward with seafood and we'll talk about seafood being acquired here at the end. And then let's talk about what the other guys are doing. So Richard is now, he's been funded. He's got some money from Gavin. He's out hiring people, right? And he's going through a list and uh, let's see, Jared, he asked Jared. Jared kind of asked for a job himself. And I think Jared's role is really interesting. You know, Jared is the ultimate number two. 
he's just looking out for Richard. He puts the interests of Richard and the company in front of him. And we talked about previously, Jared sees things as very black and white, right? There's no gray with Jared. You can count on him to help you make the right moral decision. But he's really putting Richard's interests first. And Jared says, look, Richard, I know a lot of those employees. I know what it's like to work with Gavin. Come on over. Let me help you. So Jared decides to engage uh, to, to hire Excuse me, Richard decides to hire Jared. And then you've got, uh, oh my gosh, who's the guy who's the satanic guy? Guilfoyle. Thank you. So Guilfoyle. Guilfoyle really wants the job, but is acting like he doesn't want it. Playing it cool. Playing it. Yeah, it wasn't smart businessman. (laughs) Act like you don't want the job. Uh, Although it was kind of awkward to, you know, say, no, I don't want the job. And then what, you know, a couple of minutes later come say, okay, well, I do want, I, I don't want the job, but. So Guilfoyle and Richard kind of get into this pissing match, right? Yes. Where Guilfoyle doesn't want the job, but Jared is clearly seeing through that and saying he obviously wants a job. And Richard wants him to come and ask for the job. But I think Jared does the right thing there. Like as a founder, you got to do what's right for the business. Yeah. You know, Guilfoyle is obviously, from what we can tell, the most talented programmer out there. Right. I like that Guilfoyle was saying all those other programmers suck except for that one girl. Her code isn't half bad. Yeah. Says something like that. And as a founder, you can't let emotions be in the way of making a good business decision. Jerry Jones says this. Don't let your money get mad. Right. Never let your money get mad. And I think Jared is the calming influence. There is the one that's, that's kind of resetting Richard saying, let's make a good business decision here. You know, it's interesting being a founder. I think you have to you're, you're walking a fine line because, you know, you do have to sort of be cocky, you know, and, and you know, project an, an image of confidence. Um, but at the same time, you know, when it does come to these decisions where maybe you have to swallow your pride and maybe, you know, you have to say, you know, I, I don't want to hire this person because, you know, I'm mad at him or, you know, uh, I have bad blood, but, you know, I think he's the right fit or I think she's the right fit for the company. You really, at that point in time, you have a duty to the business, right? You have a duty to the corporation, you have a duty to your shareholders, to your investors, to your employees. And you have to think, you have to put that duty above your personal interest. This is really, really important. You know, we see this all the time. Now, look, we don't want to scare people because I think a lot of founders get concerned that they're just going to get sued if the company, something you know bad happens to the company, the company goes down, the company loses money. That's okay. That happens all the time. Right. So sometimes companies don't make it. But if you're putting the company first, not your personal interest, and usually your interests will align with those of the company. But if you're putting the, you're making decisions that are the best interest of the company, then you're always going to be OK. So I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying there, Aaron. you got to be willing to put your ego aside and make good decisions. for the Also, business. I think, you know, one of the things, you know, being a founder, I think the expectation you need to go into it with is that you're going to get sued. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the best things that a founder can do is just mentally prepare for the eventuality. And when you say you're, you're get going to get sued, what no, do you mean? The company. The company. The company. Right. And, and that's the thing is part of me wants to say you're only getting sued if you're doing things right. Because, you know, somebody, you know, a reasonable a reasonable person will not sue a company that doesn't have any right. money. There's, there's value there. Yeah. yeah. Resources. So, so if, if you're getting sued, hopefully it means – you know, you have some money and that's a good sign. I, I agree with Aaron. I mean, you don't want to walk up every, wake up every day worried about or thinking today the day I get sued, but it's just going to happen. Demands for sure, right? There's going to be issues with contractors. There's going to be issues with employees. There might be issues with co-founders. So just get ready for it. I wrote this, I think I wrote a blog four or five years ago that talked about the 10 things they don't tell you when you're starting a business. 
You can access these things by going to our startups page. And one of them is you're going to get sued. Just get ready for it. Um, Sammy actually at Blossom Street Ventures. If you guys are, aren't checking them out, the blogs on Blossom Street Ventures are very informative. Now, I will caveat them saying that they're Sammy is Series A and later. Blossom Street Ventures is generally only Series A and later. So what applies to a Series A company doesn't necessarily, for sure, doesn't apply to an early stage company. Excuse me, like a, a baby, you know, just pre-development company or pre-launch company, and it usually doesn't apply to a seed company. But one of the things he just wrote was, "You're going to get sued." Well, and also keep in mind when when reading Sammy's blogs, you know, Sammy's an investor. You know, That's his, his interests will not perfectly align with those of a founder or of a of an entrepreneur. But you know, I, I think that you know of the investors, Sammy's you know a good guy, and most of the time he is just trying to you know, do what's best for the company. So that brings up a great point, Aaron. I think as a founder, you have to understand the entire ecosystem, right? You have to understand what is what are the the driving factors, the motivating factors for the investors, the motivating factors for the founders and the early stakeholders, and the motivating factors for the employees, because there's going to be a little bit different. You know, one of the best books out there for a founder uh, with a growing company is Venture Deals by Brad Feld. And I was actually thinking, Aaron, what we should do when we're done with this is go chapter by chapter. And do a review of each of those things. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be fun. We can encourage our listeners to do it and to ask questions. So I think reading venture deals will be very, very helpful. But you also need to be reading both sides of the table. You also need to be reading, you know, I think Sammy's BSV blog is very informative. Lots, lots of data in there. Um, let's see. Uh, Mark Anderson's, uh, the A to A16Z mm -hmm. blog is very helpful. What else? Uh, uh, Fortune magazine has a daily newsletter. Term Their term sheet is Aaron phenomenal. And that's, yeah. that's great. She provides a ton of great information. Uh, Pitchbook, Crunchbase also have a lot of great information. Check those out on our startups page. We've got references to all those. Okay, so diving back into this. Let's see, Aaron. Another thing I want to talk about was they talked to, uh, let's see. Now I'm drawing a blank on the other programmer. Oh, Dinesh. Dinesh, thank you. So Dinesh is now working at Periscope, I believe it was. And they say he's working somewhere. I think they said it was Periscope. Yeah, Periscope. And he's got these options that vest in a year, right? You want to talk a little bit more about that? About vesting? Well, just about what he probably got. I'm saying what his, what his vesting schedule probably looks oh, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I assume his vesting schedule is probably four years with a one-year cliff, meaning nothing vests until he hits the one-year mark at Periscope. And then... Um, after that, uh, you know, after the next three year, over the next three years, it's probably going to vest in equal increments monthly. So, and I think Guilfoy was kind of razzing about that. Like, so you're just going to sit or stick around there for a year and a year, you'll get a few stock options. Okay. And that's true. So there's this concept of a one year cliff, meaning if the employee leaves prior to the year, they don't vest anything. Usually at that one year mark, if it's four years total, then they'll get one fourth of them. Right. They will accelerate right. to one fourth of them. But the, the point of a cliff is to make sure people stick around. We encourage all of our founders to do this. You know, when, and Aaron and I go back to badassbusinessdudes.com. Yep. Is that it? Yep. Trademark. When we do badassbusinessdudes.com, we want to make sure that we're both in this thing. Because if Aaron's, if we're 50 50, and in three months, Aaron says, ah, screw this, I'm not in this idea anymore, I don't want him walking with 50% of the business. So that's why he would vest a quarter after a year and the remainder up to up to the remaining four years, provided it's usually acceleration clauses, right? right. When we sell to Grand X, would probably be a good yeah. Yeah, yeah. company for us. Yeah, so I'm sure they're listening. When they buy badassbusinessdudes.com, then our vesting would accelerate and we'd take 50 50. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I think acceleration is pretty common uh, early in the game. I've noticed in a lot of 
term sheets and Series A deals that we've been working on recently that, um, you know, the investors are, are wanting the company to rep that there is no acceleration. Yeah. And so typically what there you'll see is double trigger acceleration. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the investors don't want the company to rep that, because let's just say you have a team of five really talented engineers and they all have acceleration clauses say if they get bought out, all their vet stock is going to accelerate. Well, now if all their stock is accelerated and they're at this company that just got bought out, they're going to have every motivation to just leave, right? Right. And so if there's double trigger acceleration, the first trigger being the buyout, the second trigger being they're terminated without cause, then they're incentivized to stay unless they're terminated without cause. Right. And, and you know, you have to think about it from the acquirer's perspective. You know, a lot of the value of, of a target that they're acquiring is going to be in the employees. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily always going to be a pure aqua hire, but you know, if, if you acquire a company and then the day after the deal closes, your entire dev team leaves, that's a problem. That's correct. So you've lost a lot of the value there. All right. Two more things I want to talk about Aaron, before we leave today. First one is Ehrlich and Xin Yang, what they're spending the investors money on. There's no way this ever happens. There's no way that Ehrlich is ever spending 15 grand or whatever it was on a palapa. A hut? One of the best, <laughs> the finest palapas that money can buy. And there's no way that Xin Yang is going out and buying a Corvette with right. investors' money. Yeah, no. It, 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 it's a little, you know, it's funny because I think people have this perception of, you know, startup culture and, you know, have a ping pong table and, a, you know, whatever. And while we might have a ping pong table in our office, I'm not confirming or denying that um, we don't have any investors money. Right. We, right. We, we with our money. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, I think that sometimes uh, investors can get frustrated when, you know, if they feel like the money that they're putting into a company is not being used to, um, you know, to further the company along. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the times you can try to make an argument that a ping pong table is furthering the company because it's going to keep the employees happy and motivated. But yeah, I think tricked out office space is okay. I mean, you want to encourage the guys to stay late. If they want to play ping pong and grab a beer, then that's generally okay. A couple reasons why this would never happen. One, this, the level of spend to buy that Corvette is assuredly beyond what the company would have the authority to spend without investor approval. Right. Okay, guys. So when Aaron and I do these docs, we do these venture deals, there's, there are controls in there. And the controls on spending say, you have a budget. And we're going to sit down with the board, one of whom is us, one of the directors is repre uh, represents the investors, and we're going to create a budget. And you guys can spend money according to that budget. You can spend money on employees, you can spend money on your rent, you can spend money on supplies, maybe raw goods or inventory. But anything outside that budget more than 10,000, 25,000, 50,000 has to be approved. For an early company, a seed stage company, like they are, I mean, those guys are just really post MVP. A company like that, anything over five or 10,000 is for sure going to require Revigo approval. Well, and even if it doesn't require Revigo approval, you still want to go talk to your investor because you don't want to piss your investor off. Well, like we talked about early on, you have a fiduciary duty. Yeah. Right? You have a duty to, to use the money to, uh, wisely and to. Um, you, you have that duty. You owe that that loyalty to the uh, to the investors. So there's no way that's ever happening. I realize this is a TV show. We're here to correct those minor points. Well, and I, also, <laughs> who knows? It might have happened before. That's true. That's true. Without limits on spending, and there's that one crazy guy who uh, basically came out and said that all of his uh, all his projections were bullshit. And he lied to investors and raised yeah. three million dollars on it. He's done podcasts on that. I just wish at some point in time there'd be a little bit check and balance in the show where someone would say, Hey, I don't think you're supposed to do that. 
just so the TV audience watching understands that this isn't always how it goes, I realize we're going to sensationalize it. All right, so that was the one point. The other point I want to talk about was so the, the exit. So Jin Yang's hot dog, not hot dog technology ends up being perfect for Periscope, yeah. okay? which is hilarious. I don't know if Periscope really has this problem, theoretically. This is what's interesting, too, is they are injecting all these companies, right? All these yeah. well-known companies. Earlier in the show, they said, you know, F Jeff Bezos because all their AWS, their Amazon yeah. Web Servers uh, services costs were so high. So they're injecting Jeff Bezos into the thing. They're injecting Periscope in not maybe the most flattering of manners, yeah. right? Well, and who knows? I mean, maybe this is one of those situations where, you know, all, all press is good press. That's correct. Or it could be product placement for right. all right. we know, yeah. right? Periscope said, hey, dump us in. Periscope approved the content, the context of it. That probably is the case. So anyway, so hot dog, not a hot dog exits. I think they said it was for four for $5 million. We know that Riviga invested 250000 So Monica's boss, uh, Lori, Lori, right? Lori says, we got a 10x return, and she's congratulating Ed Chen, right? right. For having the foresight to do this deal, and then, to, uh, and then for having also the foresight to appoint Monica to work it. Which I also think is interesting because there's a big deal about there's no women in VC. And so right. now we have a woman at the top of the VC, Lori, mm-hmm. which I think is awesome. But then you've got Monica just being completely dominated by the male who was right. just the bro who, who basically got super lucky. Yeah. And yeah. now he's getting promoted and Monica, you know, watching dudes doing it. Super lucky because she was trying to screw him over. Right. Right. She, was, she was trying to feed him bad information right. so he'd fall flat on his face. And, you know, it looks like it uh, sort of backfired. I, I see this a lot. That Silicon Valley is really, really trying to push women in venture and, be curious. I think Monica's end up coming out a hero. She kind of looked like a little bit of a goat in that episode. But anyways, I wanted to mention, Lori says, with our liquidation preference, we're going to have a 10x return. You can go to Venture Glossary, look up liquidation preference. I can have Aaron explain it to you. Yeah, liquidation preference is generally broken down into you know two, two categories. One being uh, participating, one being non-participating. Um, the uh, participating means it's basically a double dip. You get, um, you know, whatever you contributed, you know, to purchase your equity, and then you participate uh, pro rata with common. Um, and it can either be a 1x or a 2x or a 3x uh, participating liquidation preference. Non-participating liquidation preference also has the 1x, 2x number tied to it. Uh, that's just a downside protection. That is, if the company, you know, if the company exits for less than um, the valuation that it raised at, then the preferred investors are going to get their initial investment money back before the common shareholders take anything. This is a really critical point for any founder out there. You have to understand participating preference and non excuse me, liquidation preference and non-participating versus participating. Check it out on Venture Glossary. As Aaron said, it's generally downside protection. Non-participating is downside protection, but participating preferred is double dip because you get your money back and you get to participate pro rata with the common shareholders. So they got a 10x return, uh, which is pretty good. So that means they got their $250,000 back. So then there was 4.75 left and they must have had 20, 30, 40% of the business, whatever the numbers work out to get to a 10x or $2.5 million return. Okay. I think that wraps everything up. So you weren't here last week and I'm sure you listened to my podcast. Uh, already. Of course, I talked about how boring I thought the one before was, but sometimes you have to do that, right? Just to right, set right. different pieces of motion. I think this is very interesting. I think they, they moved very quickly from Richard and the company splitting to now Richard hiring everyone back. Right. I'm okay with, I think we all agree. We like these guys working yeah. together. Yeah. We yeah. want them throwing the ball up in the air and 
screaming always blue and smoking pot and you know drinking beers around their uh, Ehrlich's uh, dining table. So they moved very quickly to that. I'm excited to see you know if Jin Yang, if he's going to stay on the show, he's going to keep the Corvette, I guess. Right. Right. Be curious to see what his role is. I think we're going to get more Gavin, which I think is good. We'll probably get a few less. I know that you know they didn't even talk to uh, Jack Parker yeah. this episode. We haven't seen him. Or uh, Deepak, I think was his name, the spiritual yeah. leader. We haven't yep. seen him in two episodes now. Mm-hmm. Be curious to see what happens with those guys. I do want to dive in a little bit more as we move forward with characters, because I've heard from a few people who are listening who aren't necessarily just startup guys, okay. and so they're interested in the show. So okay. we are going to try and focus a little more on characters. But for those of you listening, this will be very heavy educational or kind of point of reference for relating actual startup, the actual startup ecosystem to what they show on the show. And probably some stuff that we find funny that yeah, you might also, necessarily find funny. Aaron's opening automatic doors. And- yeah, and and my talking about my workouts. Okay, all right. Thanks again for listening. Appreciate it. Send us feedback feedback to podcasts at VelaWoodLaw.com. And we should be back with the next episode on Monday or Tuesday. Sounds good. Oh.